Join the party and spirits are playing in your city. God, we're so excited. Eric will be wearing his DMing glove the entire trip. I'm both worried and excited. Seven cities, 10 days at the end of March 2024. Your two favorite podcasts, Join the Party and Spirits, are performing live. We're playing games, rolling dice, making monsters, and a whole lot more. So come see us in Seattle at the Hereafter on March 21st. Minneapolis at Granada on March 22nd. Chicago at Reggie's on March 24th. Boston at the Rockwell on March 25th, New York City at Littlefield March 26th, Philly at City Winery March 27th, and D.C. at Atlas Brewworks on March 28th. Get your tickets right now at jointhepartypod.com slash live. That's jointhepartypod.com slash live. There you can see all the ticket links and find the city that works for you. When you're rolling the bones, your future is looking good. Join us. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And this is episode 330 about the Bacche, starting or continuing our trend of uh, ancient plays that are pretty, pretty fucked up. Yeah, I've been in my head calling this mythology as stage plays because, mm. you know, theater kids deserve all of the love. I'm Hell yeah. looking at my childhood self and I'm being like, hey, hey, theater nerd. You deserve love, too. And I want to <laughs> give it to you. Hell yeah. So as you mentioned, Amanda, we're going to be talking about the Bacchae or the Bacchae, written by Euripides, though it wasn't actually performed until Euripides passed away in 405 BCE. So it was performed posthumously and was either directed by his son or his nephew. No one's like, they didn't keep track about who did it. But um, all we know is Euripides wrote it. They performed it after he died. And it is like genuinely considered one of his greatest works, if not like one of the greatest tragedies ever written. So keep that in mind as we go through that scholars say greatest plays ever written. I love it. And in uh, in keeping with my younger theater kids self, I saw this when I was 16, when our theater group took a optional trip to London in lieu of a Sweet 16 party. My parents paid for half of it and I paid for half of it. And it was uh, wonderful. And we saw uh, the back A, uh, which was messed up <laughs> the National Theater. And it was so fun. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's a messed up play. It is a tragedy and it uh, is not afraid of being a tragedy. And we've most likely mentioned this in our It's All Greek to Me episode on Dionysus. So I'm sure that some of the names and the events will sound familiar to our conspirators. But I I really want to dive deep into this one because, again, this is one of Euripides' best works and like to this day is considered who like just just the bomb just the bomb.com and i want our listeners if they haven't gotten a chance to experience it to at least experience it here on the podcast hell yeah 
I am not the performer here. You should go see it in real play form if you can, but I will give you the the beat for beats here. So let's hop right in, shall we? Uh, The play starts off with Dionysus. This is why it's a huge deal for Greek plays in general, is normally the gods are very like secondary characters or they're like looming in the background, but they're not actually like characters in the play. And this is one of the few examples where a god is a primary character in the play. So that is something to keep in mind, too, as we go forward. So Dionysus kind of starts off the play alone on stage, and he spends the first portion explaining his origin story. And those of you who listened to the It's All Greek to Me episode will be familiar with it, but if you need a little refresher, it he talks about how his father was Zeus, how his mother was a mortal woman named Semele, and how the two had a consensual affair, which we have to specify for Zeus because a lot of times it's not. But as we know from just like Greek mythology in general, eventually Hera finds out and tricks Semele into making Zeus show her his true divine self, which is too much for her. And she is burned to death by his presence. His divine presence is too overpowering. Classique. Classique. However, Semele was pregnant with Dionysus and Zeus, in order to rescue the would-be god, stitched him into his own thigh. Again, we love an interesting birth story in Greek mythology and Greek mythology always delivers. Yeah. And like, again, how thematically resonant is this for Dionysus? Exactly. However, the problem is Dionysus was never actually acknowledged by his mother's house, the house of Cadmus. And they like all truly believed that Semele had lied about having an affair with Zeus and rather had like a mortal lover who then in turn killed her. So a rough time for Dionysus, who, like, despite being a god, is having some complex family issues. (laughs) So Dionysus, having heard the story and having been raised in these faraway lands, has decided to return to Thebes, which is the city-state of the House of Cadmus, to get his revenge for how the House of Cadmus has treated his mother and for the fact that the House of Cadmus has refused to allow him to be worshipped and has given no sacrifices to him, which is his due as a god, you know? Every which way this is going to be a tragedy. One, you're denying the true birth of a god, which is never a good thing to do, and you're uh-uh. and you're denying him his sacrifices and his worship, which is, again, not a thing you do, even if this is a new baby god. <laughs> <laughs> He decides to appear to the House of Cadmus in the guise of a human, a leader from the land of Lydia, with an entourage of his own priestesses in order to show the royal family that he is a god worthy of worship, quote, even against its will. So he he is coming in hot. He is really not going to give them an opportunity to repent. He's like, I am coming for revenge and I am going to get it. Totally. Dionysus tells the audience that even before he has arrived in Thebes, he has driven the women of the palace into a bacchanal madness, and they have fled to the local mountain, which is Mount Cthurion, where they sing and dance and worship Dionysus. And I think this is the thing that people know about the Bacchae, or at least that I did, of like, oh, yeah, the Bacchae, like those ladies, you know, like in a frenzy and like doing, you know, doing their just like lady things in the wilderness. (laughs) But there is obviously so much more to the story. 
There is. There is indeed. So meanwhile, while all this is happening, Semele's father, Cadmus himself of the House of Cadmus, has handed over the kingdom to his grandson, which is Pentheus, who has stubbornly refused to worship his cousin, even though it would just like solve all of the problems facing him. He just will not do it. I know. In so many stories, just worship the ruler, even if you disagree with them. Yeah, just like, just worship the gods. That's it. Don't like, they're gods. You know? Seriously. After Dionysus has kind of laid this scene for the audience, the chorus enters, which the chorus is basically like worshippers of Dionysus for this plot. They are worshipping, they are singing his praises, and they are calling for the city to defy their king and start worshipping as well, saying like, oh, it's truly like an ecstasy to be a worshipper of Dionysus, which, you know, it is because that's his whole jam is like ecstasy and living freely. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. Enter our guy, who you might remember from our Oedipus episodes, Tiresias. Oh, hello, Tiresias. It's good to see you again. Hello. You know, like, it can't really be a Greek play if Tiresias doesn't show up, right? Seriously. (laughs) Tiresias, as you might remember, is a seer, and he calls upon Cadmus to come meet with him as they are old friends, and Tiresias urges the king to dress up in deer skin and go and worship Dionysus up on the mountain with the other worshippers who are known as the Maenads, right? Which, like, you know, when your old buddy says, like, hey, man, we're going to go worship a god, put on this fawn skin, we're going to have a great time, you'd listen to him, especially someone as smart as Tiresias, who has a gift of sight from the gods. Of course. I'd be like, thank you for including me. (laughs) As they begin to, like, get dressed and they start to dance for the chorus and the audience, they remark on how, like, oh, despite their age, they feel more youthful than they have in years. It must be Dionysus. (laughs) Which, like, bless those bless those old folk being like, yeah, man, I feel younger than ever. So at this point, Pentheus, the new king, enters, and he doesn't see Tiresias and Cadmus, like, dancing to the side. He's too engrossed with his own thoughts, and he's so frustrated with the situation of these missing women who are under the thrall of Dionysus, right? So he tells the audience that he does not truly believe that the worship of Dionysus is actually worship, but rather, like, just an excuse for people to engage in, like, drunken, deplorable behavior. Like, how dare these people, like, quote-unquote, worship when all they're doing is getting drunk and dancing around and stuff like that. One of those moments where ancient mythology is so very modern as well. Damn. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he has told the guards to arrest any of the women who have fled into the woods to worship there. But the arrival of this Lydian priest, who is really Dionysus in disguise, has made this plan more difficult. And finally, finally, he spots Tiresias and Cadmus and tries to like basically like dress them down, like shaming them for their acts. But Amanda... Tiresias is here. Clever old Tiresias. He starts debating with Pentheus and is like, well, you know, if we worship Demeter for providing food for us, we should also be worshiping Dionysus because he provides, quote unquote, liquid nourishment, a.k.a. wine. Incredible. What a good argument. Uh, how, Amanda, you were a debate kid in high school. Yes. How would you rank that argument? Uh extraordinary and julia if i may sidebar real quick Mm -hmm. uh so on uh on survivor one of my favorite tv shows Mm -hmm. there is a rule that tribes and contestants have to be treated equally so for example when they are setting up like a you know a relay race type competition it wouldn't be fair if half of the field was in the shade and half in the sun of course so that like one team you know gets the benefit of like being in the shade as they're competing and so they set it up to you know to have it as equal as possible and so 
a contestant who was uh, eliminated this season. At some point, someone had like passed out during a challenge. And so they had to like stop the challenge. They like, you know, checked on the guy. They have a little like medical umbrella that they put over them to like put them in the shade. Incredible. And gave him a bottle of water as he was like recovering because he had previously like sustained what they realized was a concussion later. Uh-oh. And so this smart player was like, hey, um, if Bruce gets a water bottle, can't we all get a water bottle? And so they all got a water bottle. And I was like, amazing. Damn, this contestant is so freaking smart. Like, that is such a good way to be like, I did read the rules. And technically, he got liquid nourishment. So I want liquid nourishment. That's how you play the game, baby. It was brilliant. And um, I think that this argument, you know, using the rules as written is excellent. And it doesn't surprise me that Tiresias is super on the ball. Yeah, he just crushes it. He also goes on, not only is it the liquid nourishment argument, but he's also like, well, when you think about it, you know, like wine releases pain, it helps bring sleep, it brings joy to those who drink it. Like, therefore, Dionysus must be a powerful god, one of frenzy, one of panic, one of inspiration and a prophecy, and therefore must be respected. I'm into it. Yeah, Tiresias is right. But Amanda... No king has ever truly believed Tiresias, even when he talks. And in classic Greek play fashion, Pentheus threatens Tiresias, which is always, always a mistake. And the two older men leave, saying that they hope Pentheus's stubbornness will not lead to his destruction. But they're like, but it probably will. Totally. So Pentheus exits and the chorus arrives. They're calling on this minor goddess holiness to call out Pentheus and be like, hey, look at this guy. He's so sure he knows what God should and shouldn't be worshipped. Man, this guy sure is acting like an idiot and being reckless, huh? (laughs) So they leave and a servant leads on to stage Dionysus, who is, again, disguised as a human, and they present him to Pentheus. It turns out that Pentheus has ordered the arrest of this priest and he had come willingly, even like smiling at the servant who brought him before the king. And the servant is just like thrown off by this because he's never like arrested someone and they were pleased about it. So he's like, uh, I'm only following orders. I, I, I like, I didn't want to arrest you. And I, I'll even tell you, like the women who we've caught so far from the mountain, they all managed to like seemingly escape through miracles. Oh, so the worshippers of Dionysus can just get out whenever they want, huh? Must be divine intervention or something. But the audience, of course, is getting all this information, but it's not explicitly said to us. The servant also kind of senses that something is up about this stranger and tries to, like, on the sly tell the king, like, maybe you're pursuing the wrong course of action here, sir. But Pentheus is too pleased that he's managed to arrest a priest of Dionysus that he doesn't pay attention to any of the signs that this is, in fact, Dionysus the god himself. Yeah, Julia, I mean, the Oedipus plays uh, and everything else have taught us that no kings listen to advice, basically, and they really should. They really should. And that's why they all end up uh, dead or with terrible tragedies at the end of these plays. Uh huh. So, of course, Pentheus, like you said, doesn't take any advice. It starts to interrogate Dionysus, who the play refers to as the stranger for most of this, which I think is a very cool name. Yes. He asks him where he's from, why he's there, who gives him the right to preach in Thebes, etc., etc. And the stranger is like, oh, well, Dionysus himself initiated me into his cult. And Pentheus kind of scoffs at that. And he starts like absolutely dissing Dionysus, telling like a twisted version of the birth story. But he seems to like be unable to move the stranger to anger. And so he tells him, oh, well, 
Dionysus has taught me many rights, you know, like many secret rights. And Pentheus is like, oh, well, tell me about those rights because I want to hear all like the bullshit that you're preaching. And yeah, which is just like, oh, yeah, tell me all the, the deep, dark secrets so I can just turn them against you and say they're bullshit. It really reminds me, too. I'm just thinking of all the play episodes we've done now of um of the beginning of Faustus, where Faustus is like, mm, physics? I don't think so, bitch. Medicine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, law. Boring. <laughs> it does have kind of that vibe. So, yeah, unless it's interesting, then tell me all your secrets. Exactly. So Pentheus is like, tell me all your secrets. And the stranger says to him, quote, it is not lawful for you to hear, though it is worth knowing. And I'm like, ooh, that's a good response. Whoa. (laughs) I'm filing that away. Yeah. So this pisses Pentheus off even more. And he tries to trick the stranger into revealing more. But all he learns from the stranger is that he is unable to, like, learn anything, basically. And so he's just left angry. So he threatens the stranger much like he did with Tiresias. And like, this is a running theme where it's just like, when he has no control of the situation, he resorts to violence and threats. And you're like, oh, maybe that's a bad thing to do, my guy. It's a bad thing. Classic. So the stranger says in response that just like, no matter what is done to me, my God will free me and will punish you. And in his anger and feeling powerless, Pentheus does the only thing he can do, which is uh, sentence the stranger to be chained in the stables in the dark. Yep. I guess there's no dungeon or like prison or anything like that. Just stables in the dark. I mean, not pleasant. You know, a lot of smells, a lot of noises. I get it. Mm-hmm. A horse could kick you. Not a fun time. Not a fun time. Time for the chorus again after that. They are angry not only with Pentheus, but with the city of Thebes for rejecting the worship of Dionysus and also stress a connection between like the god, his father Zeus, and the fire that killed his mother. So you're just like, hmm, that might be important later. Who can say? Meanwhile, in comparison, they describe Pentheus, who through the House of Cadmus has like descended from a dragon's tooth that was planted in the earth. And they refer to him as a wild faced monster, which is a great insult. Big fan of that. Damn, next time someone asks me a personal question, I'm going to say I sprouted from a dragon's tooth buried in the earth. And you? And you? Not as good, huh? (laughs) The chorus, who does not know that the stranger and Dionysus are one and the same, then like call upon Dionysus to save their priest, the stranger, and wonder where Dionysus might be in this moment. And they kind of go through like a bunch of places. They're like, oh, I imagined him here. I imagined him there. Oh, maybe he's there. But all they know is like, I think he's coming here. And they kind of leave it at that as the next scene starts. But while they wonder where Dionysus could be, why don't we grab our refill? Let's do it. Hey, this is Julia, and welcome to the refill. Right off the bat, I have to welcome our newest patrons, Jonathan, Jacob, and Cassandrak. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are like the first flowers of spring, and I am so excited to see you here. You, of course, join our supporting producer-level patrons like Alicia, Anne, Brittany, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, Nieselkins, Lily, Matthew, Megan Moon, Nathan, Phil Fresh, Rico Like, Captain Jonathan, Malachi Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, and Zazie, and of course, our legend-level patrons. Ariana, Audra, Bex, Chibi-Yokai, Morgan, Sarah, Schmitty, and Bia Miapscotti. And if you would like to join in on the fun over on our Patreon, including tarot readings and bonus urban legends and recipe cards for drinks every single week, go to patreon.com slash spiritspodcast. That is patreon.com slash spiritspodcast. 
I also would love to recommend to you a book that I'm enjoying. I feel like I have mentioned my love for gothic horror and gothic novels here on the podcast before, and one of the books that I read recently that I really, really enjoyed that was just like really up that kind of gothic horror alley was The Secrets of Heartwood Hall by Katie Lumsden. It really was just like a very pleasant surprise. It hit all of the angles that I was hoping for. The twists were not what I thought they were going to be, but I really still super enjoyed it. And there's a little like gay surprise at the end of the book. You got to stay around for that. It's going to be a delight. So check that out and check out all of the books that we recommend by going to spiritspodcast.com slash books and you can pick up and support your local independent bookstore because it is on bookshop.org, one of our favorite websites. Now, if you're listening to this, you might have heard people say something along the lines of, oh, podcasting is easy, right? You just talk into a microphone, super simple, and then you put it out and people listen to it. It's not. No one describes exactly how to get one going or how to grow or how to avoid the complicated pitfalls that might stall a project. And if you're wondering, hey, I want to start a podcast, but I don't know the answers to those questions. That is why Multitude is offering classes for podcasters by podcasters. Over the course of four weeks, you'll learn from weekly instruction, hands-on homework, and lots of valuable feedback from your instructor and classmates in our online classroom. And if you feel like maybe, oh, I'm not sure I can commit to an entire class, we have the Multitude Extension School, which also offers comprehensive one-day seminars. So you can learn more about the dates, curriculum, and technical details, or just register today by going to multitude.productions classes. That is multitude.productions classes. I think that maybe you might only be halfway listening to what I'm saying to you right now. And that's fine. I get that. Sometimes I just put podcasts on in the background just to have someone's voice in the room with me. But it's time to tune in right now. Hey, listen, I'm right here. I want you to take a second to be mindful about how you feel right at this moment. So take a deep breath. What's top of mind for you right now? If you're feeling stressed or anxious, I want you to keep listening so that I can tell you about Calm. Calm helps you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. Their guided meditations, sleep stories, relaxing music tracks, and daily movement sessions are all designed to give you the tools you need to improve the way that you feel. And over 100 million people around the world use Calm. If you've never meditated before, if you are looking to get into that, if you're just looking to take a moment to be a little bit more mindful during your day, you can get all the support you need to reduce stress, improve focus, and uplift your mood. And of course, we love to talk about their sleep stories. They will help you drift off quickly so that your brain can recharge at night. And they're also great for getting kids to calm their minds at night so you can rest assured that they're sleeping when they need to. I love putting on those sleep stories. And I've also started using their guided meditations in the mornings to kind of like get my day started in a mind space that will help me feel good for the rest of my day. I love Calm, and Calm's got everything you need for a happier, healthier you. And for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash spirits. Go to calm.com slash spirits for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash spirits. Did you know that 
an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year. That is so many. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are only 90% water, which is heavy to ship, leading to excessive carbon emissions. Plus, those products are often filled with nasty ingredients like chlorine and ammonia. So that's like a lose-lose situation for both you and for the planet. But luckily, Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet. Their idea is super simple. They offer endlessly refillable cleaning products with a beautiful cohesive design that makes your bottles look great on your counter. You just fill your bottles up with water, you drop in the tablets, and you wait for them to dissolve. So you never have to grab bulky cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. The refills start at just $2.25 and you can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings from cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets. All Blueland products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. I have to, of course, if you haven't taken advantage of our Blue Land offers just yet, try their cleaning essentials kit. It has everything you need to get started. It's three bottles of cleaner plus a bottle of hand soap. And I love the iris agave scent. It is so nice. It is so refreshing. It's so floral and beautiful. And Blue Land has an offer just for our listeners to get 15% off your first purchase of any product. I've told you before, I also really, really love their toilet bowl cleaner. It's like a bath bomb for your toilet. And I get mine in the fresh lemon. So it's just like smells of citrus and of good times in my bathroom. And that's not a thing you can say about a lot of bathrooms. So to get 15% off your first order, go to blueland.com slash spirits. You won't want to miss this. It's blueland.com slash spirits. That's blueland.com slash spirits. And finally, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we are always growing and changing. Like I've said before, I'm a different person than I was when I was 28 when I was 25, when I was 21, when I was 18. And therapy over time has allowed me to explore the different changes and needs that I am going through as I become a different person. And if you are looking to give therapy a try, BetterHelp is a way for you to connect to a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery wherever you are. I know that I have benefited from therapy and in times where I was looking for a new therapist, it was really, really difficult to find. And if you are looking for a therapist and there's not one in your area or there's just not someone who is specializing in the things that you need to talk about, BetterHelp is a way for you to connect to that licensed therapist. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com spirits today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. All right, so we are back from the refill. And here's my hot take, Amanda. I have a hot take about cocktails for you. Yeah. More cocktails should have red wine floaters. Oh, Julia, I think you're totally right. A little bit different, but this weekend I had a cocktail involving uh, whiskey and like a peach sour beer. And it was so good. And the whiskey really undercut the sweetness of the sour and like the little funk from the beer really hit with the rye. It was awesome. And I think red wine floaters are criminally underutilized. 
I agree. I mean, the most famous is the New York Sour, which is fine. I, I'm not like a huge fan of a New York Sour, but it's fine. We could we could do so much more together. I know. I know. But today, Amanda, I have brought the Penitent Punch, which is kind of similar to a Devil's Margarita, which is basically like a margarita with a red wine floater, which sounds amazing. But the Penitent Punch has tequila, vodka, and red wine. So you know Dionysus would be all about this, right? Yeah, that uh, that seriously packs a punch, I bet. Yeah. And conspirators, if you have a favorite cocktail with a red wine floater, please send them my way. I want to experiment more with them. And oh, yeah. Oh, boy. I just want them real bad. I just want them real bad. So we left off with the chorus being like, I wonder where Dionysus is. Well, they don't have to wait too long because... In that moment, there is a flash and the chorus hears the voice of Dionysus who tells them that their prayers for justice will be answered. He then summons an earthquake that collapses the entire palace and then summons flames and the tomb of his mother flares up with those flames. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of miracles happening here. And it's very like, whoa, big, big moment. God is here kind of thing. (laughs) Dionysus then enters, still disguised as the stranger, and calls for the women of the chorus to rise. The women greet the stranger as though they know it's Dionysus himself in that moment, but then revert back to treating him as though he's simply one of the priests. And they ask him how he escaped his imprisonment. You're like, I mean, fair question. You know, the king just imprisoned you. How did you get out of there? And he just like super casually is like, oh, no worries. I freed myself. I tricked Pentheus into thinking he was binding me. But instead, he bound a bull. Oh, smart. He also tells his kind of captive audience that Pentheus, as things were starting to go south in the palace, tried to kill the stranger, but only stabbed at shadows. And the last time he saw the king, the king had collapsed on the ground. Much like that Survivor contestant, Amanda. Yeah, seriously. Poor Bruce. He literally got a concussion in the first, like, three minutes of the game. Oh, buddy, that sucks. So in that moment, Pentheus, looking extremely harried, then enters, and he is ready to fight. (laughs) Just ready to absolutely throw down. But the stranger is like, relax, brother. There's not much you can do here. You're up against a god. No matter what kind of reinforcements or troops you have, there's no beating a god. Which, fair and valid in Greek mythology, for sure. Yeah. Pentheus is still very feisty, though, but then one of his messengers enters and tells him that the Maenids have been seen on Mount Catharion and brings forward a cowherd who has seen them there. I always love when there's like a guy who's like, tell us what you saw. And he's like, well, here's what I saw. Because <laughs> we couldn't do this on stage. Exactly. It's, it's so smart. It's so smart. Once you start noticing it, you really can't stop. And it just it's so charming to me. So the cowherd is like, all right, I will tell you what I saw, but first you have to promise me that I won't be punished for telling you what I saw. And Pentheus is like, yeah, sure, whatever. Just tell me what you saw. (laughs) So the cowherd starts telling him about the women that he saw, including Semele's sister and Pentheus's own mother. And they were all like sleeping out in the open air of the mountain. And when he first saw them, they didn't seem like they were drunk or were like misbehaving at all. But when the sun began to rise and they heard the cowherd's cows in the distance, they like statically rose. They let their hair down, which is scandalous during uh, ancient Greek times. This is a reminder. Letting your hair down means you're like being unbound by society, basically. And they put on deerskin dresses. And these are all like representations of the worship of Dionysus, particularly the fawn skin is a big like Dionysus thing, in case we forgot about that. Also, can I say, looks great on all skin tones. Looks great on all bodies. 
looks, looks great on all people. I, I think more uh, faux fawn skin for me. I'm into it. I'm into it. So the cowherd continues saying that he saw them playing with woodland animals, even suckling wolf cups, which is crazy. I love that. I know. And they would like tap rocks, kind of like you would tap a tree for sap, from which milk, honey, and wine would flow out of the rocks, Amanda. The rocks. Incredible. And like, I know there are so many allusions to the Bacchae in Jane Campion's Top of the Lake, which mm -hmm. uh, is like one of the best sort of like true crimey, mystery e, but like lots of stuff going on, miniseries, like TV series. And there is a sort of like, you know, women who have been hurt by men sort of retreat and like feminist, you know, retaking of Back to the Land ish, uh, which like in New Zealand has a lot of different politics. It's very complicated. But um, <laughs> this this scene really reminds me of that where you know you you have everything you need and the land provides for you when society won't yeah and that is absolutely the case with dionysus and his worshipers here but the cowherd tells pentheus this is kind of the the wrinkle of the situation that they tried to capture the king's mother to return her to the king but when they tried to ambush the group the maenads attacked the men and their cows and while the men were able to escape the cows were torn to pieces by the maenads bare hands so that is just like where these women are at right now they're like we will tear up living things with our bare hands yeah seriously so the cowherd then begs Pentheus to acknowledge Dionysus's divinity, but of course, Pentheus ignores him, too focused on, like, again, this wantonness of the gods' worshippers, right? So he decides the best course of action is to simply kill all the worshippers who have taken to the mountain. Obviously, that's the best way to do it. That probably won't have any sort of ramifications whatsoever. Sounds totally fine. At this point, Dionysus, as the stranger, steps in and is like, okay, you know how you wanted to know those rites of Dionysus earlier, the secret ones that I wouldn't tell you? How about I show them to you? Oh. Oh. And Pentheus is like, yes, absolutely. Very quick to agree. And Dionysus tells him that he has to go in disguise, of course, naturally, because if they knew, they wouldn't let him there for the religious rites, right? Otherwise, he'd just be ripped apart just like the cattle, you know? Th this is very serious. However, a thought has just occurred to me, which is, do you know that trope now of like filmmakers making movies about the power of movies? You know, yeah. like yeah. in our house, we we go like the movies, like they're, oh, they're so, we love them, the movies. This is kind of the ancient Greek version of that, right? Is like mm -hmm. using costuming, using disguise, using theatricality on, in your stage play. Yeah. Of course, it it would fascinate these people who have dedicated their lives to to playwriting and to you know putting them on. Not to mention in a culture that um, centers plays so much more than the one that at least I grew up in and we grew up in. But that's so sweet. Like I'm picturing, you know, this is like Steven Spielberg, uh, you know, the Fablemans uh, of like ah yes, the art of the movies, and it's having a character put on a mask when they're on stage, you know, with other people in masks. Yeah. And I mean, the most wild thing, too, about what you just said is that this is also a play that is centered around the god who would later become representative of plays. Yep. It could not be more on the nose. Dionysus, the stranger, tells Pentheus, OK, here's what you got to do. You got to get a long haired wig. You need long skirts. You need deerskin, just like the other followers. And Pentheus is like super thrilled, agrees. And the trap is set. <laughs> dramatic for the dramatic part so the stranger and pentheus leave and the chorus once again left alone and they are elated by what they've just seen and know that dionysus will be successful that's our guy that's our god 
So they compare themselves to deer in that moment, running through the forest, having just escaped a hunter. And they ask the audience, what is wisdom? And then muse that wisdom must be vengeance, for they know that their god will soon have it. Which I think is a beautiful and like horrifying but beautiful sentiment. Perfect for a tragedy like this. Mm-hmm. So the chorus leaves and Dionysus as the stranger once again emerges and calls for Pentheus. Pentheus enters dressed as a woman, a maenad, and as Dionysus describes, so eager to see what he should not see and strive to achieve what should not be sought. Which again, you being like, oh yeah, you're really excited to like see this stuff that you're really not supposed to see, huh, buddy? Maybe there's a reason you shouldn't be seeing it. Have you thought about that? Yeah, and maybe you shouldn't like totally dismiss what's going on here because even you're fascinated with it. Exactly. So Dionysus begins to use his powers, kind of manipulating Pentheus, causing him to see double and hallucinate. So the stranger like looks like a bull to him. And they do this entire portion in couplets, which is super cool, which I really just like... You know, from from a mechanical playwriting perspective, it's a really interesting, very quick kind of back and forth that they do during this part with like Pentheus being really pleased with his disguise and what's about to happen. And Dionysus sort of like alluding to what is actually going to happen here. But Pentheus is not part of the joke, even though the audience is in on it. So Dionysus makes like a few adjustments to his outfit and the way he's standing and the way that he's walking and stuff, kind of like a director directing an actor. Again, this is a play about plays, which is super cool. (laughs) And so he says that he will act the servant to the king among the maenads, sarcastically knowing that the roles will soon be reversed. He also tells Pentheus that the king will be brought back to Thebes, quote, in a special state and along with his mother and then departs with Pentheus for the mountain, Mm. which mm, really, really leaning hard into like the foreshadowing of what's about to occur here. Oh, yeah. So again, the chorus emerges now more vengeful than they ever were before, and they summon the embodiment of frenzy to visit the mountaintop as Pentheus arrives there. They describe basically like they're not there, but they describe what they think is about to happen, where his mother will be standing on the cliff, seeing her son and then calling for the other maenads to attack the stranger. But again, like they're describing it in a way that is reminiscent to what the cowherd described to them earlier, Adel being killed by the maenads. The chorus basically is here demanding blood and they ask for their god to deliver it in the form of Pentheus. Oh boy. So... As per usual, we don't get to see the death on stage because Greek plays very rarely ever did that. Uh, But we do get to see it delivered by a messenger to the chorus. So this messenger arrives to tell the chorus that Pentheus is dead. And the chorus like basically rejoices, which admittedly scares the shit out of the messenger because he's like, whoa, why are we all so bloodthirsty here? Your king is dead. But the chorus is like, shh, 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 hush, give us all the spicy details, which <laughs> of course he does. So the messenger had gone with Pentheus and the stranger, aka Dionysus, up onto the mountain, and they had seen the maenads in the valley below them, though Pentheus very quickly got frustrated because he was like, I can't see them well enough. I can't see them. Like, there's too many trees. I can't see from this angle. And so he's like, I'm going to climb the cliffs to find a tree to perch in so I can see them in action. And the stranger's like, hmm, that sounds dangerous, my guy. Why don't I just do this for you instead? And he basically, like, with a single hand, bends down a huge fir tree, puts Pentheus at the top, and then straightens it back up again. Which, again, those, like, godlike miracles suggesting who he was, but Pentheus is too blind to actually see that the stranger is Dionysus. 
Yeah. And, you know, the the voyeurism of this scene, I think, is really powerful and speaks to how a lot of people are, you know, disgusted by sex or vice or people letting go, particularly women, but yet, you know, are curious to look at it, even if they don't want to avow that this is something people need or even do. Yes. And I think that, like, that is kind of the the theme that Euripides is trying to get to at the end this idea of like we can balance the like control versus letting go we can balance the the chaotic with the structured and it is Pentheus's own fault what happens to him because he cannot find that balance so the stranger puts him up on this tree however the moment that the tree straightens up all of the maenads can now see the king because he's just he's exposed on the tippy top of this tree like like if you think about it, a fir tree is very conical and he's stuck at the top so he's like very clearly not hidden by the branches and in this moment the stranger all of a sudden disappears and a voice from the heavens calls down to the maenads telling them that Pentheus is their enemy and must be destroyed. And again, much like there was in the palace, it's accompanied by this like fiery glow that signals that, oh, Dionysus is here. So Pentheus's own mother is the one that leads the maenads in attacking Pentheus as the maenads froth at the mouth and have wild eyes and they're trying to reach Pentheus at the top of this tree. They're attempting to like throw stones at him to knock him down, but he's too high to reach. And then they try to like tear the tree out from the roots, but they find that they're not strong enough. And finally, to get to him, they grab the tree and they shake it, which dislodges the king. So he falls to the ground helpless and he attempts to persuade his mother not to attack him, begging for her to recognize him and forgive him for doubting in Dionysus. In classic Greek tragedy form, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. Please don't let anything happen to me. Mm -hmm. Too late. But his mother, again, in that sacred madness of Dionysus, grabs his arm and rips it out of the socket. And soon enough, the rest of the women tear his body into pieces and scatter him across the mountain. And that is the end of Pentheus. But the final moments here are Pentheus's mother picks up his head. And when last the messenger saw, because he ran away after all that he had seen that she was heading back towards thebes claiming that she was coming home with a trophy much like a hunter would credible so the messenger then hustles off because he doesn't want to be there when the women return and the chorus reflects on while they're happy that pentheus is dead the manner of his death is admittedly really fucking horrifying (laughs) Okay, all right, we're giving notes now. I don't know about that. You're like, ooh, yeah, uh, glad he's dead, but yikes, you know? Yeah, uh, I know. So Pentheus's mother arrives at that point with her son's head in her hands and proclaims that it is a lion's head and shows it off to the chorus. While the chorus obviously knows that this is no lion, they humor the madness of Dionysus and they congratulate her on her quote unquote happy hunting. Yeah, and uh, let's just flash back again to 16-year-old Amanda, uh, jet-lagged and moved, sobbing uh, alongside <laughs> all of the boys I had crushes on in high school, mm-hmm. <laughs> because all of us are like, holy shit, wow, this is powerful. Yeah, so 
in this moment, she calls for her son wanting to show Pentheus her success. Brutal. Of course. Already the tragedy gets worse and worse and worse here. However, it's Cadmus the Elder, who we haven't seen since his earlier scene with Tiresias, enters and is carrying the rest of Pentheus's body that he's gathered from the mountaintop. Now, at this point, Pentheus's mother is still in her revelry, but Cadmus is able to bring her back to reality by asking her questions about the things around her, like the color of the sky. And she's like, oh, it's, it's glowing so bright with divine energy. And he's like, well, is it possible that the colors you're feeling on the inside are what you're seeing on the outside? And that kind of brings her out of the trance that she's found herself in. And then Cadmus asks her what she's carrying, to which she replies, oh, it's a lion's head, but then realizes what it truly is. So brutal. And I, I think I remember correctly that the prop work in the rest of the body was just kind of like a, a bloody sack. Mm. One of many moments where the implied horror, right? Like your brain can can provide so much more than any visual could. Yeah. It's like uh, the movie seven and the what's in the box scene. <laughs> but in this case, it's a bloody bag. Yeah, seriously. You look in the box and you're like a cake. And then someone's like, you sure? And then you're like, oh, no. Oh, no, it's not a cake. Ugh. It's Gwyneth Paltrow. Ah. <laughs> but the real tragedy here, I think, is that she does not know how she came by her son's head. And it's Cadmus that has to tell her, oh, yeah, you're the one who did this to him. Brutal. And at this point, the two are mourning for Pentheus, and Cadmus in particular laments that Pentheus has to pay for the sins of the family, for how they treated Semele and how they denied Dionysus. And at this point, our boy Dionysus then appears on stage in his true divine form, the stranger no longer, and tells both of them what will happen to the house of Cadmus. Pentheus's mother will be banished from the city, and Cadmus and his wife will be turned into dragons. Cool. I mean, I mean, could be worse. Could be worse. But he's also <laughs> like, listen, you're going to get turned into dragons. You're probably going to like rage across the Greek countryside for a while, but don't worry. Ares is going to rescue you at some point, and he'll bring you to a peaceful land eventually. And so Cadmus and his daughter kind of exchange these emotional goodbyes, and they depart for their own twisted fates. And the chorus has a, a final song. They sing about the power of the gods. But it's a little bit, like, honestly, unremarkable because Euripides has used the same ending, the same coda in, like, three other plays. So you're just like, all right, yep, the gods are good, and you should worship the gods. Thank you, Euripides. <laughs> it's like singing a Law and Order theme song, like, yeah, hey, I got it, I got it. <laughs> So you might be wondering in listening to this episode and like listening to a play like this, what is up with all these like people doubting Dionysus and his godhood, right? Like, you know what, Julia? I was wondering that. Yes, because like as we study it now, we're like Dionysus is solidly a part of the Greek pantheon. But when Euripides was writing this play, it was just as Dionysus was being introduced to Greek religious life. Because Dionysus was, as we've kind of talked about, a bit of a late addition to the pantheon. And he represented like a truly chaotic presence compared to the ordered and structured god and goddesses of the pantheon. Or as ordered basically as the Greek god and goddesses can be in Greek mythology, because uh, they're chaotic bitches. Yeah, for sure. So where these other gods represent like control, Dionysus is this freedom and release, like I mentioned earlier. And with this play, Euripides is saying that such a force needs its own space in the religious life of the Greeks, that the irrational has to coexist with the rational. And to deny it is to fall into the same fate as Pentheus, which is losing control and ultimately 
dying by the hands of the gods, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Euripides is really talented because he gets all this across by framing it as a family drama, which, of course, the Greeks fucking loved. The Greeks love a family drama. (laughs) Yeah, there's nothing that hits harder, it seems, to Greek audiences or at least Greek playwrights than, like, the loss of a whole house. Yeah. Like, that is, you know, I think especially for a culture obsessed with, like, you know, lineage and permanence and raising monuments and, you know, carving their names on the surface of the world. That is really fucking serious. And for most of human history, you know, you you live and die with the goal of making things slightly less precarious for the ones that come after you. Yeah. So I think this is like a great play. If you have the opportunity to go see it, please do. Like the language even translated is extremely beautiful. The scene where I told you guys about earlier where they're talking in couplets and finishing each other's rhymes basically is a fabulous scene to see live or at least to see like a filmed performed version of it. I like genuinely do think it's one of Euripides's best plays, if not one of the best Greek plays to come out of uh, the Greek playwrights here. And it's really nice to have a little bit of context for it at the end being like, oh, you know, it doesn't make sense for them to not want to worship this one god. But like, it does in the sense that hey, this was a new god on the scene and he needed to basically like win the hearts of the the Greek religious life. And I think with this play, he was solidly solidified into the Greek pantheon. Hell yeah. Well, thank you so much, Julia, for bringing it to us. It really is one of the most impactful theatrical experiences I can remember because music and lighting and just all of the the tools that we use to transport human beings to other emotional states in theater is such a good compliment to the subject matter of this play and you know made me think and you know what we did because we were 16 in uh in england uh but not 21 in like some of us were 18 some of us were 16 anyway uh we did drink red wine after uh we got home uh to the hostel illegally with our teacher uh not knowing (laughs) and our parent chaperones not knowing uh because you know What more do you do after watching a play about Dionysus? Of course. And listeners, next time you are frolicking on the mountain, wearing your deerskin outfits, remember, stay creepy. Stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.